You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, and co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner, mortgage broker, and wealth coach. And together, we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. Veronica will introduce our guest in a moment, and I can tell you you want to listen on to hear what he has to say about why agents fear telling the truth. We all amended our behaviour to be able to deal with that. And there was times you go, you need to tell the vendor what they want to hear and then deal with the truth later. Because at the end of the day, the guy who said 1.3 was, he's the one driving around in the Mercedes with a commission and I'm still in my secondhand suit, you know. (laughs) Please stick around for this week's Elephant Rider Bootcamp. And we have a cracking Dumb of the Week coming up. Before we get started, Everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. This week, we're picking the brains of Ewan Morton, principal of a Sydney-based agency simply called Morton. Now, Ewan and his father originally established this business as Morton & Morton back in 1996, Over 22 years, Ewan has grown the business to comprise residential sales, property management and building management teams with a staff of over 120 people across seven Sydney locations. And I think actually that they're one of the most awarded agencies in New South Wales. You do enter the most amount of awards, right? (laughs) People often ask me, like, how do you win an award? And I say, fill in the form. Yes. (laughs) I think we're going to do a whole episode on that. Uh, Okay. Ewan is a non-selling principal and as such, his focus is on supporting the development and overall performance of the business. He's also very well regarded by the industry as a whole and has been awarded REB Thought Leader of the Year twice in a row, reflecting his commitment to challenging the status quo. And this is precisely one of the reasons we want to talk to him. Welcome, Ewan. Thank you very much, Veronica. Welcome, Ewan. Thanks Thanks for coming in. Pleasure. I want to talk about the idea of challenging the status quo, which I think you talk about sometimes. And um, can you tell us a bit more about what you what you mean by that? Well, I mean, I, I don't really consider myself to be a a um, you know a, a, an out there sort of a person or a rebel. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm probably way too conservative for that. But I, I do think that uh, we have some issues in our industry about how we have done things in the past. For a whole bunch of reasons that aren't, you know, and how we're structured fee-wise and how that all works, which has led us to have a certain set of behaviours that actually need to change, which is what this path to professionalism, if we get into that, is all, is all about. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, and also the, the availability of information has changed the whole dynamic of how people relate to us. And as an industry and as people operating in it, we've got to get used to that. And I actually think our issue is not necessarily the fact that that information is now publicly available, like price and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. It's us actually dealing with that and dealing with how that changes our role and embracing and trusting that. My father-in-law said, says to me once, said, you know, I don't get it. Like, you know, when you're selling a property, you offer a price, accept the price, it's that simple. And I, I was <laughs> often like, I wish it was that simple, like whenever mm-hmm. you have humans in it. But I remember when I started selling real estate and it was a different world then when you know, we did hold price information and we would go in and I would go and talk to a vendor and they'd say to me, Ewan, tell me the truth. And my father, who's in our business, always said to me, you know, son, 
you've always got to lay straight in your bed at night. Like we're from the country and that was his big thing, right? So they'd say, you and tell me the truth. And I'd look at them and I'd say, oh, do I really want to do that? I'd say, no, tell me the truth. So I'd say, okay, I'll tell you the truth. Your property's worth a million dollars or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And then the next person would come in and they'd tell them 1.2 or 1.3 and, mm-hmm. and it was a lie. And they would say to me, well, you and we've gone with the other guy because they could sell better than you. And mm-hmm. I'm like, could they? Or yeah. they just lied better and yeah. you believed them. And then in four weeks' time after that, they're coming back and say, oh, you and I say, what did you do? Oh, we sold it for a million. I was like, that's exactly what you said. We should have gone with you. Now, that, that's a very, very frustrating situation if you're an honest person, right, which I deem myself to be yeah. so. So we all amended our behavior to be able to deal with that. And there was times you go, you need to tell the vendor what they want to hear and then deal with the truth later. <laughs> because at the end of the day, the guy who said 1.3 was he's the one driving around in the Mercedes with a commission and I'm still in yeah. my secondhand suit, you know. <laughs> so, You're not feeding your kids by telling that's the truth. That's right. And, and I found that very hard. Right. Mm-hmm. The beauty of today is now all that information's out there is that when someone asks about price now, so we go back to that situation, you do that in 2018. In fact, one of my guys just relayed exactly this story to me yesterday where the, the owner would go, well, you and what's it worth? A million dollars. Oh, I agree with you because I've been to university and I can run an <laughs> Excel spreadsheet and I reckon you're right. And the man who goes in there and says 1.3 the vendors now are going, well, I've assessed that information. I think you're lying to me already. Mm. So the beauty of today is that we're actually in the era of the point of difference for an agent is good character. Like, can you believe that? Like, like it's now, it's <laughs> now good it. character. No, yeah. that's fantastic. It's mm. fantastic. So, you know, before the system of real estate was you and the honest person actually turned into you and the honest liar. So I had to say 1.3 and then bring them back to a million in such a way that they love me. And we train to that now because of the availability of information and why they can find out about me and find out about my business and the whole thing. People can now are making a different sort of a judgment because of that information. But that issue where you're like, when they say, please tell me the truth, as an agent, you're like going, you're actually looking at that thinking, am I going to get fed, right? Or I've got to pay my bills because it's a commission only industry. So it's a very, it's a, there's a lot of fear from an agent that sits around that going, oh, if I tell you the truth, are you going to respect that truth? Mm-hmm. Now that information is available and, and they can see it, we're now in that area where, where that can happen. So as an agent, you've got to be able to trust in that and also mm-hmm. be able to talk your point. So we now talk about, you know, you know, you've had all the information, you tell me what it's worth. What is it? A million bucks. <laughs> Looks like we're all on the same page. Now it's a conversation about how do we actually get the most money. And that's a really, really great value-added conversation to be having. We're actually adding the value. So what's happened is you get a lot of agents who talk about how our power has been taken away, the job that we've done has been taken away. I actually disagree with that. I actually think we are getting greater clarity over what value we do add, mm. which is how do we help somebody transact their major asset to get them the most money. And I actually think that vendor is like, I'm happy to pay for that. Mm. And you know what? I'd actually pay you 2%. So as an agent group, we all keep our mouths shut. We'd actually probably get 2%. In many ways, we're our own worst enemy. And that's why I think we're in a good point in our history that if we can embrace this, then we can actually not only make money, right, but also maybe enjoy our jobs and (laughs) actually be proud of what we're doing (laughs) 
and actually be able to stand back and say, we actually do help people, which is really what an agent does. But if I try and explain to somebody, you know, someone says, what's your job? Well, I actually help people get through really difficult moments. They're like, I get lost. Like that, no one believes that, but that's actually the truth. I think it's a really good point around, it's an opportunity to look at things as demonstrating your value and actually yeah. having a real conversation yep. rather than the smoke and mirrors of, I'll just get you the best price. I think that's not only happening in real estate, it's happening to a lot of professions. Yep. I mean, the Royal Commission is basically that's happening mm. right now. It is basically forcing a lot of industries to have this same question and, and to actually demonstrate value. I mean, because there's a lot of value that obviously real estate agents do provide, but yep. your your friend who just, you know, doesn't yeah. get it, who just thinks that you just sell it, yep. you're actually now having to go through a process of actually demonstrating that value. So, you know, I completely agree. It's an opportunity for agents just to... A massive opportunity. Yeah. Yeah, massive, massive opportunity. And bring it on. I think it's great because, you know, for me personally, the idea of being a profession, I think I love that. I've always probably extremely proud to be a licensed real estate agent because we are giving people advice yeah. about the most expensive asset yep. that most of them will ever own. Yep. So it is very important. Now, interesting about you talking about that agents trusting that because of course, <laughs> and this is one thing that I've often looked at when I've thought about, you know, buyers complaining about agents underquoting, for instance, you know, I know agents underquote, I get it, but I also know that buyers don't tell the truth either. No. And there's that saying buyers are liars. Yeah. Right? And so there's this smoke and mirrors and there's all these these games that have been played by both all participants. The vendors play a game, the agents play a game, everyone's second guessing. And I think this with this transparency is great. And your take on that just in in sense of the, you know, the age of information that puts vendors in a more educated point of view. And obviously buyers have that same opportunity. And I'm really interested in how is a good agent able to take that? How is a good agent able to overcome still that lack of trust that's out there in a way that they can manage helping both the owner as well as the buyer? Well, I think there's a couple of things to that. I think firstly, both a buyer and a seller, I think, recognize that an agent needs to be in the middle. And while we have humans on the planet, there will always be a place for a middleman. Now, I understand, you know, with technology and there's certain things where middlemen have disappeared, you know, in commodity type of things. But I think in housing, which is such an emotional thing, regardless of what anybody thinks, there is so much emotion that surrounds the sale from vendor buyer. And you can try, like I've sold my own house and I tried not to be emotional and I was unable to. <laughs> yes. And, you know, and I went to an auction and I was not going to be emotional and I ended up spending more than I thought, you know. Uh, like, see, that's And it. you do. And, and for all sorts, <laughs> and I bought this house. I have three daughters. I bought this house because they could all get married from there. I mean, what a stupid reason oh, to buy a house. Wow. But that's, you get affected mm. by that stuff, right? So I, I think the first thing is understanding that there is a role for us to play and accepting that. And I think that the core logic did that report when they surveyed people about agents, what they want. And one of the things that came back is please do not say bullshit. Like, and they actually used that word mm. and that was the direct feedback. So you've got all these people sitting going, you know what, I really do want to deal with an agent. I see the role of the agent. Could you please, please, please tell me the truth? Could you please help me? That's actually what the consumer is saying to us, mm. right? Mm. They're not saying... I want you replaced by a piece of technology. Although if we continue to behave poorly <laughs> and don't trust in this, mm. yeah, of course I'll look at that because the, the whole thing can be painful. So I think that's part of it. And also I think agents actually, well, being more professional, more educated and taking that responsibility more seriously, 
Real estate's an interesting career. I call it an end of the line career, or it has been up until this point where it's one of those things where someone's sitting there going, well, life hasn't panned out so hard. <laughs> I, I've got ADHD. I can't concentrate. I'm a bloody good talker. Uh, I've got a bit of charisma about me. I'm actually essentially hopeless. And their whole family's looking at them going, you're hopeless. And everyone's like, well, what are you going to do? And everyone scratches their head and they go, I know, real estate. I mean, the number of phone calls I get from people, oh, you want to have trouble with my kids? And uh, <laughs> do you think they'd be good in real estate? It's no, like, no, <laughs> make them a doctor. Like, like, for God's sake, you know. So so our, and because because there's this this feeling that you can make a lot of money with having no skill, but that's it's not correct, right? It's It's actually a fallacy. And you know, when you look at some of the stats, I mean, I was talking to John Cunningham, famous man in real estate, and he's been doing some studies on how many transactions are done by agents. And it's quite shocking. Uh, I can't remember his exact percentages, but it's like 75% of the agents are not making enough money mm. to actually survive. Yeah. So that 75% is churning the whole time. The majority of the business has been done by the top 25. And if you look at a top agent, you really study them. Uh, oh, guess what? They turned out to have a university education. Oh, funny that. Or they actually are really concentrating on being very good and actually having the knowledge. So you go to somebody who's an expert in the area, like I've got guys in Piermont and in the CBD. If you want to buy in certain sections of that, you go down and talk to them. They know everything. They can quote you strata plans. They can quote your apartments. They can quote you square footage. They can quote you the history of the place. They just know know it all, right? Mm. And And that is... Education, like to actually know what you're talking mm. about and to spend your time refining your skills and actually being an expert at it. And it's like any profession, like whether you're a lawyer or a doctor or an engineer or whatever, you've got to spend time and being passionate about what you do to take it to that next level. And I think that's the key. So again, this sort of trusting in the fact that, you know, knowing what you're talking about, doing the courses, the path of professionalism, I think is really good because you're going to have to do your license. And even the changing of the laws where everybody yeah. is going to have to be licensed. So, or you slack people out there who have trouble studying, start concentrating, <laughs> you know, like. <laughs> it is interesting out. because remember when ma the material fact laws came in yeah. some years ago? Yeah. And, and so they came in as a, <laughs> you know, as a consequence of basically Seth Gonzalez house in North Ride, I think it yeah, was. Yeah, yeah, the murder. So, you know, for, for those that aren't aware of this, what happened is that this property was the site of a, of a gruesome murder, a double, triple murder, actually, I think. And it was sold without that being disclosed. And the people that bought it, when they subsequently found out, they were mortified and galled and went, I would never have bought the house if I'd known. They had to go to court. They ended up getting out of the contract. They were compensated. And I think that from memory, the house originally sold in, say, 900000 say, for argument's sake. And then when it subsequently sold, where they had to actually disclose what had happened, it sold for around about 700000 And so the, there were laws put in place about material fact. And so agents had to disclose something that fundamentally would impact on a person's willingness to buy the property and then secondly the price that they'd be prepared to pay because it'd been demonstrated that knowledge to this effect would make an impact on the price. Yep. Now I love this because you ask an agent what they believe to be material fact and the definitions vary astoundingly and one thing I find very infuriating and I do come across this even with some successful agents is you ask them a specific question and they're like I don't know. 
And I'm always amazed by that because personally, as an expert, I like to be able to answer a question or I will find that out because that's a very important question. Thank you for asking. But there's been a bit of dodginess that's been in the industry in terms of agents deciding what they believe they can get away with not disclosing or by basically by claiming ignorance, they don't have to disclose. So, you know, how do you deal with that in your business? Well, I mean, I always thought about those material facts, like that had no effect on our business because I always felt that mm. if you're selling something and you got a problem, whether it's a murder or, or other things, strata problems or whatever, if a buyer finds that information out and it doesn't come from you, you can kiss the sale goodbye. Mm. Yep. So if you're sitting there and you know that there's a problem, then get in front of it and actually declare it first. You've got a much greater chance of getting that buyer to process that. Mm -hmm. See, yeah. essentially, I think sometimes as agents, we forget that buyers are capable of making their own decisions. Mm -hmm. Give them the full information and they'll actually make the right decision. Not give them full information, they'll make a wrong one, right? So, so just trust in telling them what they need to do. And also you're there to act in the best interest of your vendor and the best interest of your vendor is not hiding something because mm. if it comes out later, well, you're in a whole world of pain. You one may not sell it. You may not, you might lose the listing or you might cost your vendor some money. Whereas you're much better off sitting down with the vendor and explaining that and then navigating your way through it. So I've always taken the view you get out in front and that's how we've always operated. So, you know, people who hide things are like, you're an idiot. Like, I, I just think that doesn't work. It's a great point and I, I've always or, thought exactly sorry, that. Or, sorry, something else. Mm. Or you might get away with it, but it causes you reputational damage. Mm. Now, because we're in the age of the agent of good character and we're in the age of social media and testimonials and you can only get those testimonials now if the client chooses to log on and do it. So they've <laughs> actually got to go through some pain to do it, not like write it up yourself or turn it into a PDF or whatever. Now they actually have to do it themselves. So mm. the only way you can actually get them to do it is you've got to impress them so much that they actually will go to that trouble doing. The only way you can do that is by doing a good job. So mm. you've got to really think about your reputation moving forward. And I spend a lot of time talking to new agents about that because obviously, you know, it is a commission-driven thing and human behavior being as it is, when you're thinking, you know, I need the money, what are you willing to compromise on? in order to get the deal. And I remember when I first started as a real estate agent, that's actually really quite challenging. You know, when you think, well, I'm actually earning 30 grand here. It's not very good. <laughs> I'm not going so well. I think a lot of people can be tempted to take the low road, as I call it, when in fact, the older I get and the more I have this business to anybody who's starting, you start on the high road and stay there. It pays off. Now, particularly where there's reputation stuff is now becoming visible, it'll pay off faster. So that's how we deal with it. So there's an argument with when you're picking a selling agent that you should either go for the one who's selling the most or the one that's selling the least. The one that's selling the least is more hungry to get the sale and the maximum price or the one that's selling the most maybe is, is a bit too busy. Do you think that's really true or do you think it's just a bit of a do you myth? Know, it's interesting because, you know, you look at some of the portals who are looking, you know, upgrading all their sold sections. Even you look at things like Rate My Agent, you know, and they seem to be getting more and more and more ways of how you can choose your agent. And that reflects that lots of consumers have different priorities. So, of course, everybody wants to look at what is the track record of that agent. And some people will choose that because they are the most experienced. But, I mean, if they turn up and they're flippant, arrogant, a wanker, 
<laughs> you know, most people go, well, I, I'm going to have a, a longer-term relationship with you and it's got to be a relationship of trust and I'm feeling I can trust you. More likely, I'll go with the person who hasn't got the track record but is more believable, amenable, trusting. I think one of the big things that shifted as well is that I remember losing a sale to, to a competitor and these people said, oh, you know, oh, can you come in and tell us why we're crap? Anyway, in they came. And the guy made a very interesting comment. He said, you know, at this particular time, he said, you know, it's only a four-week relationship. It doesn't matter whether I like you or not, <laughs> right? It doesn't matter. And I really, I really do like you. But this guy had the track record and been in the market for a lot longer than I had. So mm-hmm. he said, my risk is a lot less going with him, right? You know, he couldn't even write English. Like, you know, his sales permission <laughs> had typos all the way through it, but that didn't matter. That conversation's changed now because you've now got two working parents, for example, or two a working couple, and everyone's busy and they're time poor and they've got all the information and they actually truly want somebody to help them. So when they're looking at an agent, they're actually going, you know what, this is a year-long process. By the time I start thinking about selling, then most people accept that they're going to have to prepare their property for sale. There was a time when no one did that. Trying to sell them to style it or paint it, maybe we could tidy the garden, maybe. You know, (laughs) people just didn't do that. Whereas now everybody understands if you make an effort with your property, you get more money. So they do it. So then they need advice. They know, what do I do? What do I paint? What tradesmen? So you end up working with these people and then you sell it and then you've got to move them and sell them. So people are saying, well, my, my agent relationship actually is going to go for a year. And again, this is where the agent that is not a dickhead actually is going to excel because they're going, I understand that it's a process. I understand that I need to take steps to get the most money. I understand that I need somebody who actually can negotiate. I need somebody who can get on well with buyers and build Mm. trust with them because that's the key to getting the most money is actually building the trust. So they all understand that. So therefore, and and also I've got to work in with this person. I want to like them, Mm. right? So why I lost that listing back in that, that wouldn't happen today. They're like, no, I want to work with a sensible, um, mature, knowledgeable, a person who can lead me, Mm. lead me, lead being the key word, lead me through this process so that I can get the best outcome I can and potentially help me. I think some even recognize that we have to help them process their emotion and help them move through this. So you end up as like a, you know, a counselor. Property therapist. Yeah, property therapist. So I think the whole dynamic has changed, which I think is fantastic for our industry. I think that's also happening very much so in the financial advice world yeah. and the mortgage broking world. I don't without know why doubt, they're... the financial advice world in particular was you would go to the advisor that's promising yeah. the best returns. Yeah, and I think you know consumers are a little bit more savvy than that now, knowing that it's out of the advisor's control and they're promising you something they can't deliver on, and they're a little bit more savvy and they're going to the the, the advisor that's actually giving them the most common sense advice and actually, you know, it's well, frank and honest to their situation. But also, you you know, too, like instead of going to the financial advisor with a complete blank, like having no idea, we're all a lot more knowledgeable. We all understand there's a market. We know a market goes up and down, right? We're not judging our financial advisor. We're actually saying, can you help me navigate that? So when it's up, I'm going up. And when it's down, I'm minimizing my losses. We're not blaming them for that. Yeah. So, so the way we look at things, we become more. I suppose we've just become more knowledgeable and educated in everything that we do. And that makes our role as an agent easier. With the younger agents, <laughs> I imagine, you know, they've got families to feed and, you know, the practice they're in or the agency they're in might still be doing bad behavior. I guess what you, you know, you'd like to think is that, you know, they're going to have the confidence to to just go out there and try to build their reputation. But I imagine the turnover rate in real estate agents is pretty scary. 
One thing's going through my head, and I'm in 100% agreement, 100%, but I'm also, the back of my head is, are we really there yet? You know, I, and I talk to buyers all the time, you know, like now I'm not a selling agent. I talk to people that are that are preparing to buy and there's still, there's still enough information in people's heads to be dangerous, not enough to make good decisions. And, you know, there's still by far the majority of agents are nowhere near that level of thinking. And we talked about you being a thought leader, you know, and this is clearly where we're heading, clearly where, you know, buyers are going to be able to have this expectation of agents. But in the meantime, it's a bit of a dog's breakfast out there, right? And we're finding this in the conversations we're having. Some agents are extremely professional and very much focused on that advice giving and that long-term focus and the reputation and, and character being the differentiator. And I love that. There's still people that will swallow that dream of being told, no, I think your house is worth 200000 more than the next guy, that, that will happen. I don't know if it'll ever not happen. But that's easier to deal with now. So, I mean, you st- of course you still get that, mm. right? It still is a nervous discussion, I suppose, when you're talking about price. You're still thinking, oh, my God, am I going to hit this on the head and mm. is it going to be okay? But I suppose because the information is out there, if they haven't chosen to look at it, which I find more and more, of course they've looked at it, And it's becoming so easy to get it. Like, Mm. you know, I've got realestate.com sending me notes telling me how much my house is worth and and sending me recent sales and and all of that sort of technology is improving. So so in some ways they can't avoid not seeing it. Mm. But there's still interpretation. I mean, you know, we all all think our own home is worth more than it really is. We hope it is, that's for sure. Do you know what I mean? There's still a challenge to in terms of the – and because (laughs) this is – you know, I want listeners, there's going to be vendors and buyers and, and would-be vendors and would-be buyers listening to this thinking, okay, where am I going to make sure that I get the information so I make good decisions, you know, well, because you've got to interpret this information as well, right? You do, you mm. do. And also, you know, I mean, having had these conversations with my own wife when you're lying there in bed at night thinking, okay, what is our house really worth? And, you know, is it this, is it that? Well, What's our worst case scenario? Like when I bought a house, then sold my house. So I had that, I was in that, I actually have to sell it. (laughs) I'm in a heap of, yeah. Yeah. So we definitely had our worst case scenarios. Now, did we tell our agent who actually happened to work for me? Uh, (laughs) No, right? Mm. Because I thought he's doing his job. But certainly in terms of, you know, lining up the comparables and making sure that, you know, you really, it's all about what buyers think, not what the vendor thinks in the, in the first mm-hmm. stage. You want to make mm-hmm. sure those buyers see the value there and then you work it to see how you can negotiate the better price. So you're still going to have those issues, you know, and I've had, I had conversations on last weekend with, with vendors where I was like, let me tell you how it really works because mm-hmm. their emotion around what they'd done mm. and they'd done a marvellous, marvellous renovation uh, which may have been a little too marvellous, getting, getting people to work through their own emotion is hard. And yeah. this is where I think one of the key traits of a good agent now is leadership. Mm. You know, what, what a lot of agents I don't think even realise is that they're actually leading clients through these, these moments, these mm. challenges. And what that means as an agent is you've got to be prepared to be able to have the conversation that needs to be had. And I suppose that's why we do acres and acres of dialogue training mm. and, and go over scenarios is how do we actually say things in a respectful manner that actually gets them to listen to what we're really saying. But, you know, I have times where I've got to sit down and go, look, you're completely out of line here. So what's the dialogue for that? Well, 
Veronica, whatever. I mean, I, I mean, I suppose I'm Come at on, a stage. I, I'm at an age, right? I think, and also in a position in what I do is that I, I can just tell people how it is, and also I do that in a very caring way. Mm. Let me tell you, I go to all the auctions at Morton. I see it all, and I can tell you now that based on the market conditions we've got today, if you do not take this price, the risk is that you'll be accepting less next week because we've all come to a point with the campaign and this person's prepared mm -hmm. to pay the most right now. Now, we can do our best to leverage that person up as best we can. My fear is that if you don't take this, that's what's going to happen. But at the end of the day, I'm your agent and I'm here to serve you. So it's <laughs> your call to make it. See, and I think that's a difference too. In the past, you know, we'll, you must, you, that's sort of like trying to force them. It's like, mm. don't sell it. Don't sell it. It's your, it's your house. Don't do it. And of course, that's always a good one because people go, oh, well, actually, I do want to sell it. Well, why? Well, because I've actually need blah, blah, blah. And it's like, okay, fine. Well, then it looks like we should accept this price, shouldn't we? <laughs> right? And they, they do it. Right? And of course, they're always happy. I mean, Jackie Smith, who you know well, mm -hmm. who works a lot with us. She always, I remember she always said to me, she said to me, this was years ago when she started working with us, she said she's never seen somebody unhappy after an exchange of contracts. And I'm like, you know what? That's right. They all might be yelling and screaming, <laughs> but once it's done, relieved. they're very happy and relieved. So you've got to, that's why I think leadership's an important thing. And agents, we have to step up to the plate on that. And sometimes that means we've got to say stuff that's uncomfortable but that's actually part of what our duty is and our role is. Our duty is to act in the best interest of the vendor. And that sometimes means we need to tell them stuff that they don't necessarily want to hear. Let's come back to when you were first an agent, you yeah. go into a listing appointment, you've got another agent that's told them they're going to get 20% more than you told them, yeah. blah, blah, blah. You're faced with the situation of having to tell them one thing that you don't really want to tell them in order to get the listing because at the end of the day, only the person who gets the listings actually got a job. Yeah. It's a little bit the same at that pointy end of selling, isn't it? Oh, the you don't, unless you, you sell don't it, have you don't to get sell it. Yeah, exactly. Because look, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, I get it. Like, mm. I mean, you know, Morton is in the business of selling property. Yeah. That's another one of my great <laughs> lines I tell my people. No way. Yeah, no, it's like taking on listings that don't sell. Well, why you do all that work for nothing? Well, that's bad business. Yeah. So obviously there is a balance. If someone is going to sign an agency agreement, then they're obviously their preference is to sell. That's our great line. Uh, another Jackie Smith. If they've signed up, then, then then that's what we do. We give them every opportunity and choice. So another line we say is our, our job is to give you a choice. Mm. So, you know, if they're really held fixated on their price, which people do, right, because they're human, you know, what good's that to them, right? At mm. the end of the day, I'd rather try and engender them some result and some outcome that they then can make a choice on because if I don't do that – then they're not going to get anywhere near selling it. So, so again, I think it's a, it's a leadership piece. Like, and I think this is coming into the, into the agent speak, which is a great thing too. Agents Imagine speak. that. Oh. Real estate agents as leaders, mm. uh, which we are in terms of what we do, but I don't think we've ever really recognized that. And of course, with that comes responsibility and with that becomes professionalism and you taking seriously what you are doing for somebody. So, you know, the agent that is thinking only of themselves. And again, it's a bit like human nature, what, how, how it really works. If you want somebody to do something, if your own personal agenda is completely obvious and you're running that, guess what that other human does? They mm. don't do it. The only way they're going to do that is if they can see that it is in their best interest to do that, right? So our job as an agent is to really understand what our vendor's situation is 
and what is in their best interest. Like I've got one at the moment that I'm handling myself where I'm just like, okay, what is in the best interests of this guy? And in a way, I'm almost pulling him back and going, no, 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 we're going to do it this way because I don't think that's in your best interests for where we need to get to and what we're going to achieve. So I think if you, it's a funny thing, if you trust in thinking of someone's best interests, then they will follow your lead and sell the property, which gets you the money. But people don't believe in that. Like I even Mm. thought even when I think about my people, like the people who work for Morton, and I say to them, and this is it, my job is to think about what is their best interest. Mm-hmm. Now, if I can demonstrate that to them and I genuinely do that, that's how I retain people. And I've got people that have been with me for 15, 16, 10 years, 12 years, long time, much, much longer than anybody ever makes it in real estate. <laughs> and the, re- the way I do that is I think, okay, putting my own interests aside, yep. putting more inside, what is in the best interests of this employee? And when I think it through, often it's like, well, changing behavior or doing something and staying with Morton, right, is, is actually in their best interest to do yeah. it. But being humans, and I suppose it relates to the, the transaction, humans being humans, they cloud stuff with a whole lot of crap, mm. really. And that's part of what we need to do is help them navigate that. Absolutely. And so, okay, from a buyer's perspective, okay, okay. So, yeah, yeah. so you guys are, <laughs> you know, and I mean, that's why we, you're here because you have – a certain level of experience and a certain way of thinking that is basically where the industry is going, which is great. And we've Hopefully. had John Cunningham in here. Yeah. We've been talking I know, about it's not, it's not, the, might have said it's a bit weird. No, 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 the pathway <laughs> to professionalism. And I think it's great. You know, yeah. I absolutely do. From a buyer's perspective, because buyers are out there in a world where you've got agents such as you and your team, you know, John and his team, you've got the old school agents, you've got youngsters who are, who are just Burning, trying yeah. to work their way through this. You got those that are making money, those that aren't making money. It's a minefield, and yep. and buyers are struggling to. There's inconsistencies, and so they're struggling to try to work out who they should trust, who they shouldn't trust. So I'm actually quite interested. You know, from a buyers are obviously can start to suss out who are the more professional agencies, but in terms of how are your agents working with buyers and working to influence buyers through this process? Well, I think it's like anything. You've got to engender trust. I remember in 1996 having this reflection uh, when auctions, right, how people used to run auctions in, in those days. I remember having a thought process and going, you know what, the key to a successful auction is actually lining your buyer and your seller up at the same level. So if you can go in with a, a range and a reserve at the same level, you'll actually be fine. And also if you have good relationships with your buyers, that's how you get more money out of them, <laughs> right? Because when it comes down to it and they've gone past what they wanted to spend, but you know that house suits them or property suits them. And you say, pay that extra 20 grand because it's what you want and we know you love it. And they go, okay. And they do it. Mm -hmm. If you have a combative arrangement where you set everybody up to fight with each other, it doesn't work. In my view, it makes for a very unpleasant transaction. And I hated that. I hated that combative nature of it. I just think it just was unnecessary and um, didn't, didn't actually help anybody. And at the end of the day, didn't get you the best, the best price. You've got to build good relationships with them. Yep. And at the end of the day, it's one of those things. It's all, yes, we are paid by the vendor, right? No doubt. Yeah. But unless you've got a buyer, you've got nothing. So therefore you need to be working with your buyers 
and getting them to you know, be able to influence it. You can only do that if you've got trust. Like auctions. So how do you get trust? Talking to them, getting to know them, showing them respect. You remember when we used to do auctions, like you go up and talk to the buyers and everyone used to hate that, right? <laughs> it's like, oh, God, what am I going to say? And you go in there, get lost. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh. Whereas now, now we work to have such a relationship, you know, we're saying to them, like, we're going to come up and talk to you at the auction. And they're like, oh, thank God. Mm. Uh, I really want to know what's going That's good. Thanks. I want to know what's happening. Right. Whereas in the old days, they really put the barriers up. So, so it's being able to preset what's going to happen. We even do stuff is like, we think you should make the first bid. Right? Why should mm-hmm. I do that? Well, sometimes it's the first bid that can actually win it. Right. Showing confidence and getting out in front. And there's always somebody who's got the sort of personality to say, okay, I'll do that. It's just working with them. You're working with all of them, right? Yeah. So assuming you've got more than one at an auction, you've got maybe three, you know, good auction these yep. days, you've got two. Yeah. <laughs> you know, an auction a, a year ago, you had you 22. You only need one. You only yeah. need one, Veronica. One with a pulse and a yeah, checkbook. Yeah, that's it. We're, we're the master of the no buyer auction. I oh, can tell you yes. how to do that. I remember, yeah. oh, I remember buying yeah. one from you guys. When yeah, we were the only that's it. Bidders. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. And, and, and look, I remember also back in, you know, it's after true. September 2003 when we all learned how to negotiate <laughs> with one buyer under the pressure of an auction. Yeah, yeah. Great for building skills. But... This is trust. It's a competitive situation. Yeah. Buyers are actually obviously watching you going having a conversation with another buyer yeah. as well. So how do you manage that? I know. So mm. the, the thing is, if you have a transparent playing field and respect the buyer to make their own decisions, as long as they have full information, they'll line up and compete. So, you know, where people don't tell buyers everything, right? So, and there, there isn't like, you know, how you disclose office and stuff like that, but it's like, yes, there are three buyers. There are three contract holders. The other two are buying for these reasons, whatever. They are turning up. They are within the range of what we have been quoting. That's what you'll be competing at, right? So people at least know what their competition is and they know what they're up against. I was fine. If someone starts engaging in an auction, for example, like it actually takes quite a bit for them to not turn up because it's all the process that goes, the emotional investment, and also the stuff yeah. you've got to do to get organized. You're going to at least turn up and have a crack. So it's about making sure that they understand. So when they arrive and they say, and this is why I love the, the registration Great, now. Oh, God. <laughs> Thank God that mm. came in. It's right. like, well, how many, well, here we go. I've got five registered bidders and here's the cards. Uh, and they go, oh, you told me there'd be five. Yeah, they are. They're all here. We do have a dark horse as well who we've never met before. We don't know what they're going to do. So that is number six, but we're not really discounting him. So it's almost like, you know, with the vendor, you want them to know who all the five buyers are. You want them completely briefed. It's almost like you want all the buyers briefed on each other. So then they're going, right, fine. I, I'm now on the field. I see my competition. I know what I'm up against. I'm perfectly capable of making my own decisions and I'm going to compete fairly and openly to win this property. And that's how you get the, the competitive environment. And also as an agent, what more can you do? Like, I'm sorry that there's five people who are interested in this property. Yeah, I've done my job. I've done my job. And also, yeah. I, but, I, but that's just that the, the reality is, is that's what you're up against. So be prepared to pay more. <laughs> now, yeah. also, at the end of the day, everyone's got to remember that is what your job is. Exactly. Your job is to set it exactly. up so that people do pay exactly. more. I'm there to act in the best interest of my vendor yeah. and create an environment. Now, if you choose to pay that, that is your choice. I'm not going to force you to do it. I've just created an open environment for you to have your best crack. So how are the buyers doing all the wrong things and sending you in the wrong direction? Well, I always say to buyers is get on well with your agent, right? Because, they, you know, buyers, like, they like to hold back. Mm. They don't want to tell us things because if they did, it might declare their hand. Declare your hand. What does it matter? 
at the end of the day, if you don't put your hand up and bid, it ain't going to be nothing. Yeah. And and at the end of the day, you've got it. You or, or offer, or if you're doing private treaty, offer on it. But <laughs> you telling the agent your situation will not harm you in any way because it may actually get them to favour you in putting you into mm. an off-market property or giving you all the information that you need to know what you're up against. I mean, so, would you see a, a buyer that's not disclosing information and is being a bit hesitant, like sitting back, do you see them as someone that you're, you're going to engage with? Or Yeah, you just got to work harder, mm. right? But also sometimes, you know, you've got to respect that. So, you know, if they choose to, you know, they only want to give certain information or they're handling it. I mean, you know, classic is with a buyer's agent. A lot of people who are using a buyer's agent may come to see it, but they won't disclose it that they're with that buyer's agent. Oh, I think why not? Like, I think that's it... bizarre. I always say to my clients, I say, oh, are you going to tell them that you're representing us? I say, well, yeah, because I don't want them thinking they've got two buyers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, well, actually, good point. But also to an agent knowing that information, how does that harm them? That's exactly what it I mean, doesn't. You've got it doesn't. Buffer, you've got a buffer yeah. there anyway. And also, and also too, you've got to remember as well, agents are used to being treated poorly. Mm. Like we, this conversation has mm-hmm. been very much about what's wrong with agents. Well, you know, as an agent out there, open protection, being accused of being a liar every five seconds, I can remember that in my own career going, you call me a liar one more time, I'm going to kill you, right? Which <laughs> wouldn't have been good. No, it wasn't in that murdered house, was just, it? Just no. lucky they didn't but it call you a liar again. You. It does get yeah. to you. I'm not an angry person, but that made me angry. You know, mm. I got sick of it. So you've got to remember agents, we're not always treated as, as respectfully. And if I was a buyer, treat the agent with respect. What you'll get out of that is full information. You might even find yourself in a favoured position. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, you make the call about what you're going to bid and buy. So you're completely mm. in control of that. And also now that the off-market market mm. is increasing, like we're, we're certainly definitely seeing that and we're working harder, you want to be on the inside with the agent who can actually place you in a property that you like and work with them. And just like you might be working with vendors, you can be working with buyers. Agents understand that you're, you know, you may buy through Morton, you might buy through Bresic Whitney or I don't know, mm-hmm. you, whatever. We do get that. But I think, you know, just by showing those sort of respect, I think the buyer personally gets a better outcome. And in fact, I'll even say the people who are really rude or poor formed. Might not get the call when the contract. Well, no, more so that, you know. They'll push we'll harder on pay. price. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's a tip. There's your tip. There's your tip. There's your tip. Behave like an absolute prat. And you'll pay for it. And we sit there going, right, we're going to make this person pay more. Mm. You know, sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. But I just think that there's enough emotion in the transaction as well. And if you're a buyer, just, just get on well with everyone. Have good relationships, you know, be an open person. You're completely in control because at the end of the day, you're the one who's got to make the, make the bid. And you, you actually might end up with better information by being friends with the agent. You talk about best interests a lot from a, a real estate agent with a seller and looking out for the seller's best yeah. interests. Do you think that the real estate agent will actually progress to a point where they'll actually start to look after the buyer's best interests in well, terms of the best agents out there? I think, uh, I mean, I think in order to make a transaction work, you have to think of everybody. And you're not going to act in your vendor's best interest by treating your buyer poorly because our job's to 
well, get a result, secure a sale. And, you know, a lot of vendors too, like, yes, we're there to get the most money, definitely. Like that's part of our job, but different vendors have different things. Some people will need a fast sale or something's going on. And while you're mucking about treating the buyers like crap, being Mr. Arrogant Pants, you've got your vendor at the back, which just gave me a deal. I need it right now. And sometimes agents miss those sort of signals. So you've really Mm. got to be attuned to that. So I think it is, but also I think this is partly why we're seeing the rise of the buyer's agent and definitely massive rise in buyer's agents. And we're seeing a lot more. And to be honest, we like them. Mm. Like if someone's in the past, oh God, buyer's agent, not now. When I see there's going to be a buyer's agent, okay, great. I'm actually going to be talking to somebody who understands the game understands the emotion, understands how it works, and also understands that you only win if you buy the property. I was really interested to know, you do a lot of work in the city. Yeah. And the city's changing, as you can see, yeah, through the is. developments. Sure and is. Just be interesting to hear that you, a bit of a story about the buyers that are moving back into the city and the demographic shift, I guess, on you know what all this construction really means. Well, I mean, Sydney's changing dramatically everywhere. And you've also got this, the the couple of trends that are happening is one, people accepting that they may spend their life in an apartment. Whereas, you know, really in the old days, you lived in a flat and then you sold that to move to your house. Well, for a lot of people, that's just, well, either one is not possible or two, they don't want it because people's lives have changed, got busier, working, lifestyle. We have more things to spend money on. So you know, the, the, the entertainment options that are out there. Sydney's getting a lot more crowded. So, you know, getting from one side of the city to the other is not that easy, you know, two hours getting your kids backwards and forwards from sport, like you could bloody fly to Brisbane for that. Um, you know, like it's, it's that, that's having a fundamental effect where people are deciding to live in areas and go smaller to do that. They want better quality, better design. And also, of course, better amenity around where they're going. So that's definitely a big thing. I think we would appear at this stage not to have enough housing, which seems extraordinary when you look at all of the stuff that's been built. But we we have the wrong spots. Well, (laughs) maybe is it? Uh, A lot of it is, I think. When you talk about oversupply, we think about it. If you talk, people talk about oversupply, like Melbourne and Sydney both have areas of oversupply, which goes to the idea that there's been stock built where people don't want to live. Yeah, but, you know, there's sometimes places where we have to build the stock because that's the only place we can put it, you know. <laughs> Everyone would love to live in the middle of Mossman, but I just don't know whether Mossman would allow for us to build the stock that people want. I want to make a comment on this because we have we manage 3,000 properties across the city, right, and it's a lot. And the actual thing that I watch all the time is the vacancy rate mm. because the vacancy rate actually is to do with the end user. So if we have a vacancy rate that spikes right up, then we're in a whole heap of problem. That's when you'll start to see capital values come down. But the vacancy rate is really, really high. But if you're talking about city, it's either singles, it's young couples, it's maybe young overseas students, you know. What is it? I mean, if we weren't, you know, people weren't moving here for a lot of jobs and our migration and our city growth wasn't there, you know, maybe we would see vacancy rates. You know, right? I if everyone it's... stopped moving into Sydney, that would that would uh, help us, yeah, bring I... prices down. But that doesn't seem to be the trend. No, it's not going to happen. I mean, not, it's not going to ba- happen based on forecasts. I mean, but... I don't think I don't. But these are, these are people I... renting, not wanting to live. They're 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 looking to live well, so there because <laughs> you're also seeing a lot of people who choose to rent somewhere and own property elsewhere. So that's definitely becoming a big trend. People are people choosing to rent for longer. And one of the interesting 
uh, phenomena we've seen in our rent roll is the turnover is dropping. So we used to know that 70 to 80% of our rent roll would move within a 12-month period. It doesn't. It's now below 50%. So that means people are spending more time saying, okay, where do I want to be? Where do I want to live? I'm going to stay there and I'm going to stay there for a longer period of time, which actually moves towards the trend of Sydney becoming like New York, where people are renting and, and also long-term transactions are dropping. Yeah. So, so the, the actual. Yeah, the sales volumes. Yeah, the sales volumes are dropping over the last 20 years. It's actually, I think it's quite a shocking statistic, which is part of Mm. the problem is that there's not as much transactions occurring Mm. as there used to be Mm. because people are choosing to hold things for longer. And that's a part of that affordability piece, isn't it as well? The cost of transacting as well as, oh, what am I going to buy? And the cost of upgrading. But it's interesting because I know that you guys have been working with developers for many years and actually taking on entire buildings and then, you know, renting them and and on sales and all the rest of it. The stats you're just talking about, for instance, you know, like Damien Cooley, for instance, he put it that, you know, they are, they <laughs> auction a fair amount of property in yep. Sydney and they put out the Cooley index every month. And that's yep. interesting statistics and a, and a drill down into things that other mainstream stats don't offer, such yep. as, you know, percentage sold with a, a vendor bid or, or whether vendor yeah. bid was used or, you know, over reserve and, and the amount of bidders, the amount of, re, um, amount of registered bidders and those sorts of stats. And they, they're interesting. Yep. Um, what about, do you put out those sorts of stats about turnovers, about those, you know, the longevity of a tenant, that, that, that sort of thing? Because that'd be quite useful. Yeah, it would be. We are, we're not doing it now. Maybe just giving me a marketing idea. There you there, go. Monica. Especially with 3,000 <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. on your No, no, it is. Mm. Yeah, and also, like, talk, come back to your point about building in areas that people don't want to be. Well, we're renting things in areas that before people didn't want to be. Mm. And now those buildings are renting at a pace I have never seen before. So the last rental glut we had was 2000 to 2004, five, and then 2010, rents started to move up and they've basically been going on. Now, with all this new stock coming on, definitely there has been some suffering, uh, but, you know, in, in suburbs that you wouldn't necessarily have thought would have been popular, we're seeing rental increases. Um, also, the, the, the quality of the product they're building now, because we're building apartments, not flats, Right, and people are looking at amenity and design's got a lot better. So, you know, developers are spending a lot more time thinking about the amenity and is what's in the apartment. Is this across the board or is this, you know, still suburb specific? Because I, I, my observation. What do you, what do you, what do you give, me, give, me a, give me an example. I look at a lot of the, the stock that's been built, say, along New Canterbury Road. Right. Um, versus even I was out in Erskineville the other night and looking around there, you yep. know, there's a, or there's a massive, I think there was a thousand apartments being built in the back of Erskineville uh, and they're still being built. Yep. Um, and even there, there's been a mixture of um, uh, architectural style. There's certainly some buildings that seem to be much more appealing than others from the outside. And there's a certain, I guess, an obvious differences in some regards to build quality in the sense that level of finish, shall we yep. say. Um, but when you go out, you know, New Canterbury Road, that, has a completely different feel. Yeah, different market. Defi- yeah, exactly. And so that's that's the question there. That is this, you know, what areas are you saying that the 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 design and the build quality is actually better? Because I think there is a fair amount of variance. Yeah, I mean, I suppose I'm talking generally. Yeah. When I when I think about back in 2000 and some of the stuff we used to do there, and mm-hmm. and a lot of the problems we used to have with defect management, mm-hmm. and even when people bought their apartments and have done a little bit of a better job in handing them over. Whereas now in my most generally people have got a lot more recognition about actually making that quality better. 
You yeah. are, you have got obviously, you know, it's like anything. You've got areas that are cheaper and you mm. get a different type of style of developer and it's not consistent across the board. Yeah, I, yeah. I completely get it. But I would say on the whole, um, you know, new apartments are offering more than what they would have done in the past just because there is more generally more thought going into design. And also that's what I suppose where the developers have spent a lot more time thinking about their brand yep. and they're doing that by thinking about the quality of what they're putting in, the design, all those sorts of things. 20 years ago, people didn't think like that. Yeah, and I guess it comes down to a, a massive conflict for a developer, you know, that if you're building a better product, you know, and you're trying to sell it, you've got to sell it for a better price. And when there's, you know, buyers are comparing products, sometimes they don't really see the value in that and, and their yeah, budget. Although, although, actually, Veronica, where I first met you at King's I Row. I know. So King's Row, this, this, is, this is probably a good testament. This is 1998 and it was a block, it was an Alan Jack Cotier building. Um, one of, I don't know if it was one of their first ones or whatever, but a uh, studio and one bedrooms. And these studios were really well designed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like they really were. They oh, thought about 36 cream. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but you know what? Even after we still manage those same apartments all this time and those studios have stood the test of time mm. because they, they did the undercover balcony, the doors that went back, the, yeah. the basins that could double as a laundry tub, all mm-hmm. this sort of, and, and it wasn't necessarily about making them more expensive to build. It's just that they thought about them better. Yeah, they did. So, so good design does not have to be more expensive. It, it just needs to be, it's more thought out. And I think we're seeing more examples of that. And I also think that the consumer, be it the buyer, the tenant, the person, they've become more discerning because they're thinking, I'm going to be here for a longer period of time now, so I'd like mm. it to be a bit better. So what does that mean for, I understand that, you know, the build quality is getting better and we're yep. building better quality and we're building more kind of three beds and we're targeting them to families. And, you know, a lot of the new stuff is getting better. Yeah. But what does that mean for the last 20 years of new builds that haven't been built, you know, with this mindset? And I guess from an investor's point of view, you know, you're basically getting, you're, you're basically in the, the pool with all those other properties. So how do well, you? Well, that's opportunity too. So, so, you know, obviously the new stuff that's coming with all the smart things. I mean, I suppose in this, in these, all these apartments that have been built, the secondhand market has suffered somewhat. And so we we're saying to owners, you've got to compete with this newer stock that has more amenity. So, you know, people having to paint and carpet and re rebuild, but I, I think some of these older things, the, the older ones tend to be bigger. So with an yes. apartment, the two <laughs> big things with an apartment mm. is internal size, right? Even if it's configured badly, you can always change that around and outlook. So does it get any sun and what's it looking at? So mm. at the minute, if it's looking at a tree or something pleasant, if it's a view or some sort of aspect, they're the two key things. So the beauty of those older ones is they actually tend to be bigger. Sometimes not the most efficient use of space, mm-hmm. But when they're, you know, kitchens are 20 years old, 15 years old, you reconfigure that now. And there's lots of companies that have specialized in that type of thing where you can upgrade and turn them into a much better, much better outcome. So by upgrading them, they Mm -hmm. can compete with the new ones and actually compete really well because they're bigger. Mm -hmm. I think also you've got to draw the distinction between um, apartments that are in big, big, big complexes where the very first 
release, and it's the same with land releases in, in subdivisions. You know, the first release, the land's bigger, the apartment's bigger, um, but obviously they're going to date very quickly because then the next one comes along, it's newer and shinier, but they're a little bit smaller and, and so on and so on and so on until you get to the tiny, tiny apartments, but they're newer and shinier and people are still paying a premium for brand new, but the first lot look a bit tired. But you know, that's when the size becomes a real um, selling point. And I remember some years ago I bought an apartment for a client who desperately wanted to be in Waterloo and she fell in love with a property that was like had no direct sunlight, was tiny, it was an absolute box but it was brand new and she was totally in love with it, took me there, I want to buy this and I went, right, before you make a decision I'm going to take you to one that's 12 years old. The beginning of all this stuff, it was something like 20 square metres bigger. It had an extra bathroom, it had a much bigger balcony, it had a beautiful outlook across the park with sun, but it was dated, you know. We got it for this slightly less money actually, you know, paint job and new carpet basically to make it look 100 times better. But she's always got a bigger part, a bigger apartment yeah, with, with a better outlook. Yeah, which will stand her. Yeah. And I suppose yeah, the thing is like so she'll, she'll compete well in there. Obviously, the presence of a building. So this is one of the other big mm. things that's changed is apart the presence. So where people didn't think about the entry for, so it's just a corridor in, and you had the 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 um, what do you call it, the mailboxes. Now people want to know if I'm going to live in a small space, I want my people. You know, if I'm having people coming to visit me, they're like, oh wow, this is nice. Like so, so the wow factor of that presence is important, mm -hmm. and even the external of it. So you know, back 20 years ago, no one thought too much about how it really looked. Whereas now people are thinking more about that. And I think that, that, that is something that people will pay money for and buildings get certain reputations. I think now that they're not selling them as they were five years ago, the foreign investors, the yeah, investors yeah, more down. generally, mm. you know, couldn't, um, can't borrow the money they could, you know, bank valuations, banks, mm. are, you know, et cetera. You know, they're not able to sell them. So they're having to build a better product. Yeah. I guess my fear that is that, you know, there are a lot of poor products out there. There are a lot of poor buildings out there. And I guess it's, you know, what this is actually you know, alleviating too is that you've got to be extremely careful when you are stepping into yeah. parts of the apartment market. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, it is, you know, it's everything's not equal. And if we're saying that a lot of the new apartments are better than the older apartments, if we come back in 10 years' time, are we going to be saying the same thing? Who knows? And I, I guess, the, you know, are the apartments built in 2026 much better than the apartments built in 2018? And when, when you are building apartments, I guess you've just always got, and you're buying apartments from an investment point of view, you've got to be worried about what comes in the future. Because if what comes in the future is better than what you own today, your supply or what you own, the quality of it is actually going down in value. Well, I mean, I think also, you know, it's like, for example, you know, everything was brick walled, right? So, you know, when we're selling a property and it's got concrete walls, mm. you know, where they built bricks with concrete. So the mm. bedrooms had concrete walls and the neighbors <laughs> were a concrete wall. You know, well, that's one of the big things that we emphasize. That's a selling point. That's a feature. And then they went through a phase there around about 2000 where they all got into lightweight construction. <laughs> and uh, anyway, uh, like so lightweight that you could have been all living together. <laughs> yeah, no. So, and then they moved on to a, a sort of a hebel brick type yep. of a thing, which improved that. And, you know, they realized that the acoustics of those things weren't very good. So those apartments that don't have those, that have got those acoustic issues, now that has to be dealt with. So people might be putting on another wall or doing something to improve the acoustics, which of course devalues the apartment. You've got to, you've got to fix it. So I suppose you just got to look at the construction techniques. I, I do think that the builder is really, really important, probably more important than the developer. A lot of the developers, the, the name developers either have their own building yep. teams, right? And that's important. 
Uh, but I think the builder is a really, really important part of it. What their track record's been and what's their process for dealing with trouble? Because mm. there is always going to be some sort of defect or some sort of issue. The good, the, 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 the um, builders and developers of note are working really, really hard to make sure that that's okay. So, you know, we, I'm, we do a lot of work with PACE and their process that sits around the, the apartment being completed and then handed over. I mean, there's, there's multiple inspections by the developer with the builder. You know, they're all working very, very hard with their objective being is that when the, when the buyer actually sees that, the, the, the defect list is really minimal. Mm. Right. So, so there's, there's definitely been a change in attitude on that. And I think mm -hmm. that's why you need, you know, it's like anything, you've got to go with somebody who's got a reputation, who's reputable. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because I think the, I guess one of the issues with buying brand new anything is that there's no track record. And obviously yeah. if you're buying, you know, 10, 20 year old apartment, there is in the strata report, which we're going to do an entire episode oh, on mate, how to read strata reports, <laughs> yeah. then you are going to at least have access to some version of the history. And as I said, then you just keep posted for that episode on how to read strata reports because they do vary and there's a lot in that. And so history can be a good predictor of the future. But certainly if you are going to be buying brand new or or off the plan, then researching the developer and the builder critical um, because they there is a massive amount of variance in that. Yeah. And, I, and I think your point there about how do they handle, um, it, you know, when things go wrong. And I think that that's a really it's a good question that buyers well, should what ask. What happens is, you know, I say this: you see, so everyone starts with the best intention to build a really good quality product. Mm -hmm. They you start off everyone? that way. Well, I mean, really? let's, let's, let's 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 believe in the best part of human nature here. <laughs> but what actually happens is. You know, the pressure of getting up and going, the budget, the selling, the timing, whatever, they, they come under pressure to deliver it by a certain time. And I call it, they lose the will to live in that everyone just wants to get the bloody thing finished and be done with it. Whereas developers who have, and it's a good question for, for, for you know, for the listener to ask is to actually look at the track record and the, the, what is the process the developer has around the handover of that apartment and, and how. How rigorous is it? And, you know, so, so, so for example, Pace, who I used as an example before, they, they, they've, they've been doing this for a long time. And so they've refined their process. Every project they get better, every project they learn, they debrief, they, 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 they everyone talks about it. You know, what products did they use to tile, whatever, how did it go? What do we think? And they're, they're on a continual process of getting better. That's, that's, that's philosophically how they are. So it's finding people, I suppose it's like finding the, the company that everyone talks that, but it's the one that actually acts Does that is the, is the one that they need to, need to get. I guess the hardest thing when you're buying off the plan or anything new is you're basically buying a marketing uh, campaign and you're buying something that, you know, isn't going to settle for, for years in advance. And no matter how nice the renders look, you know, it, it's, you're not going to know what the finished product is until it actually yeah. settles. And while you might go look at a previous development that that developer's done, um, you know, they might, when they're doing the new development, they might hit, hit those hurdles, you know, they might yeah. get the bad weather, they might yeah. get. And so when they're kind of looking to, you know, get this great product, they had all the great intentions, yeah. but maybe they're the, the developer that's had to rush it at the end. Maybe. And uh, so I guess it's either just some of the issues, I guess. That well, and also the risk is, the risk is like, and all, but the, the other opportunity in that is there's sometimes where you, you just, if you want to buy in a certain location, a certain building, you're buying off the plan, that's all there is to it. 
And also sometimes, and it doesn't happen all the time. Like I get it. There's plenty of occasions of people who bought something that turned out to be worth less than what they paid for it. There's a whole program in that. There uh, is. <laughs> but there's also, but there's also people who bought something that's turned out to be more valuable. So it's a very hard thing. I think, I think the key to that is the buyer understanding what their real needs are, what they're trying to achieve and what's going to work for them. Mm. And they may be looking at both off the plan and already built yep. and it's what suits them best that would, would do it. It's just, you know, the proper, the pre, the principles of buying good property doesn't change, you know, no location, location, location. Oh, yeah. as they say. Every week we hear incredible stories of the dumb things property buyers do, dumb things that end up costing them a lot of money and or creating a whole lot of stress, mistakes that can be avoided. Now, please, you and help our listeners out here, give us an example of a property Dumbo. We can all learn what not to do from these stories. Dumbo of the week. I didn't want to insult anybody with the Dumbo of the week, but I think what I find all the time with humans is they think that they need to behave in a certain way when actually the truth is to behave the other. And so in the example we just gave, yeah, yeah, don't tell your agent anything, be rude to them, uh, transpose your numbers and give a wrong mobile, yeah, good on you, uh, give a false email address, that's really, really clever. You know, they think that that's the way to manage the agent when actually the opposite is the, the way to get a better outcome is be completely open and transparent with them and you might end up buying the house. Mm-hmm. So I, I think real estate transaction is filled with that. Have you, have you got an buys, example of um, how someone's <laughs> shot? Come on, for how someone shot themselves in the foot. You get a lot of buyers. Like I've had it, particularly in this current market. Well, ha ha ha! I'm the only one here. I'm the highest bidder, and I've won, right? And you mm. go, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, you've really, really won. Um, I don't think you bought it yet. So how have you won? And you can see them go, oh, oh, right, <laughs> yeah. So you're walking out of here. You've really taught us a lesson but you haven't actually bought the property. Mm-hmm. So well, that's how why do we, and, and you see them, they go, <laughs> they showed, oh, yeah, you're they right. They showed actually. their power by saying, yeah. I don't have to buy it now. Yeah, in the so hot cool, market, don't do I it. did. <laughs> yeah, you told me you really liked it, suit everything you want. You don't, okay, fine, don't buy it. No, actually, no, we do want to buy it. Right, well, why don't we have a just dis- Now, obviously, <laughs> you're sitting in the pole position. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see what we can do to do it. And I'll let me help you to see if I can do a deal and put something together. But it would help if you could help me by actually making an offer. Now, on that note, we're yeah. going to say thank you so I much. Well, thank you, you very much. much. I could have gone all day. I this know, is fun. I know. It's fun. Oh, it's fun. Well, we'll have to get you back because yeah. when we feel like there's more to be talked about. I know. And I think there are, you know, there is, we, we're just scratching the surface yeah, yeah. even in that topic. So we'd love to get you back. Oh, I'd love to come back. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Pleasure. Thank you. We want to make you a better elephant rider. This week's elephant rider training is... How to become the agent's favourite. Now, Ewan talked quite a lot about, you know, the benefits of becoming the agent's favourite. You certainly can get the inside running at times and how sometimes agents will actually really push buyers that are annoying to pay more money, perhaps unnecessarily. So becoming the agent's favourite is obviously a very important part of setting yourself up in that negotiation. So... How do you do that? Well, I think first and foremost, you have to get over yourself. You have to recognize that they're there to do a job and you have to forget any notion that they're the enemy. Ewan also said something really interesting about agents not liking being disliked. They don't like being called liars. They don't like that reputation. So you've got to remember that they are human beings as well. So approach them 
with a little bit more openness. Now, I would tell you, if you've told an agent you've got $1.2 million to spend, for example, that doesn't mean you actually have to offer it. So you can be a bit more transparent with agents without necessarily feeling that that compromises your negotiation ability. Now, if you do your research and understand values, you're less susceptible to being led by an agent. But if you see the benefits in actually getting them on site and working with them, you will actually find it easy to negotiate with them. You'll get better quality of information from them. And you will also get the inside running when they've got off market listings. So I highly recommend that you befriend the agents. So Veronica, what have we added to our elephant memory bank this week? Ewan mentioned a core logic report. He mentioned it in passing, but I think the one he was talking about was one about the perceptions of agents by buyers. And it's a really interesting report. I've read it. So we're going to include that in the show notes this week. Tune in for our next episode when we interview a McGrath agent, Marnie Senior, from the Eastern Beaches down in Matraville, Maroubra area. Marnie's been in sales for a long time and she revealed the conversations that an agent will have with the owner and also with the buyers regarding price. Now, I tell you what, every single buyer I know wants to know what the agent and the vendor say to each other. So this is the episode that will reveal all. The Elephant in the Room Property Podcast is recorded at the Sydney Sound Brewery. This week's podcast was recorded and edited by Gordy Fletcher. Until next week, don't be a dumbo. Me again. Don't forget, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends and we'd love an iTunes review. Be aware, everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances.